So you may have guessed today we are talking about marriage. And if you want some practical marriage advice, basically just do the opposite of what you saw in that video. Now, the topic of marriage may not seem relevant to everyone because the reality is not everyone is married. There's also this reality that the topic of marriage can be a strong negative trigger for many people just because of negative experiences or perceptions they have about marriage. It could be because they long to be married, but they're still single. They feel the loneliness of that. Perhaps you have been divorced, or your parents were divorced. Or perhaps when you think about marriage, it caused you to spiral back into a sense of grieving because your spouse has died. Or maybe for you, it's just an issue if you feel trapped in a bad marriage. Are frustrated that your marriage has not met the expectations that you had for it. So the reality is, marriage is a topic that can be very challenging, very, very difficult. Yet at the same time, even though these topics surrounding marriage are sensitive, and even though some of you are probably thinking, you know, marriage isn't even on my radar screen. I'm a child, I'm a teenager. It's like 10 or 15 or 20 years before I even consider getting married. Even if that's you, what we're talking about today is still important for us all. So I'm going to pray for us and we're going to dig into this topic of marriage. So Father, as we come to this topic today, we know that you have a lot from Scripture to say about marriage. But you also know that marriages are filled with lots of challenges. Even the best of marriages have had or either, or maybe even currently are facing challenges. And then there are many who have had marital challenges or just long to be married and just have that heartache. It fills, fills people with grief and, and, and challenge and, and heartache. And Lord, this stuff is hard. I pray today that you will guide us from your word, that this will be a place of grace, a place of understanding of, of the challenges that we face, but also understanding of who you are and how you want to work in our lives. So please guide us now as we open the scripture. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. So I invite you to turn in the Bible this morning to Hebrews chapter 13. Hebrews 13. If you did not bring a Bible, but would like to follow along in one, you can grab one from the pew and turn to page 1213. We are in our final weeks in the series walking through the book of Hebrews. And the latter part of this book is filled with a lot of practical instruction. And today, as we walk through the book, we come to a verse on the topic of marriage. Now, today's passage is one verse long, so let's look at Hebrews 13, verse 4. It says, Let marriage be held in honor among all, and let the marriage bed be undefiled, for God will judge the sexually immoral and adulterous. Now, there's a lot to unpack in this verse, but the first thing I want to point out is that we are to give honor to marriage. Give honor to marriage. When you honor something, you treat it as something special. You treat it with a sense of respect, even reverence. Think, for instance, of birthdays. Here in America, we typically honor birthdays. We honor the people whose birthday it is. We set it apart as something special. We, we, we treat it differently than other days. For those of you who are children, I want you to imagine it is your birthday... And on this, your birthday, your family and your friends just treat it as any other day. 
There's no party. There are no presents. No cake, no candles, no celebration. How would you feel then? Odds are good children. They're probably people of pretty much all ages. If it's your birthday and no one really recognizes it at all, you're going to feel quite upset, aren't you? To use a grown-up word, you're going to feel dishonored because no one is treating you or your special day as special. It's a no-brainer here in America that birthdays are to be treated with honor. And likewise with marriage. Hebrews 13.4 says, Let marriage be held in honor among all. God created marriage and he means for it to be treated as something special. We see the start of this back in Genesis chapter 2. After Adam surveyed the animals and he saw there wasn't any, any animal that was a good fit for him, it says in Genesis 2.21, So the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall upon the man. And while he slept, he took one of his ribs and closed up his place with flesh. And the rib that the Lord God had taken from the man, he made into a woman and brought her to the man. Then the man said, This is at last bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. So we see here that God created woman not from nothing, but by taking a part of the man and fashioning that into the woman. And then when Adam sees the woman, he's like, whoa, this is what I'm talking about. Bone of my bones, flesh of my flesh. He's excited about this new creation, this woman who's been fashioned from a part of himself. Now the next verse, Genesis 2.24, gives a summary statement about marriage. It says, Therefore a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. So in marriage, there is a union. It's called a one flesh union. Husband and wife are to become one flesh. This is symbolizing the union sexually. That's the idea of one flesh. That's what it symbolizes. But also relationally and spiritually, emotionally, mentally, you know, financially, other ways as well, calendar-wise. The two are becoming one. And when two come together as one, it's not merely a union, it's really a reunion. Because remember, the woman was created from a part that came from the man. So two becoming one is a reunion. Therefore a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. It says the man and his wife were both naked, and we're not ashamed. So in God's original design, there was no shame. Husband and wife, they are together, fully exposed to one another in body and in soul. And there is full acceptance. There is full trust. There is full comfort with one another. There is no shame. Let marriage be held in honor among all. It's important to understand that marriage is foundational for a healthy society it also has major practical benefits for those involved. I think, for instance, of how marriage provides someone to share life with in a committed covenant, not just in a relationship that is convenient. Because, you know, most relationships are based, at least in significant part, on convenience. On convenience, but marriage is different. It's a committed covenant. Let me share with you some of the wording I use 
in a lot of the weddings I officiate, I say something along the lines of how there are so many blessings that come from marriage. For instance, when you experience joys and accomplishments in life, it's so special to have someone to celebrate with. On the other hand, when you face trials and heartaches, you will be there to support and encourage each other in a way that no one else can. And along the way, you're going to learn fascinating things about each other and about yourself. And through the years, you accumulate so many experiences together. Your lives will become so intertwined with one another that you will not be able to imagine where you would be or who you would be without the other person. And this is how God designed marriage. That no longer are you operating as two separate individuals. Instead, the two of you are becoming one. So this is a picture of marriage. This is what I say in a lot of weddings. And it's what I pray for couples whose weddings I officiate. That their lives will become that intertwined as two become one. Now another practical benefit of marriage is how it provides stability for children. I've heard it said that the best gift that parents can give to their children is the parents having a healthy marriage. Now, if you ask the children what they want as a gift, they'd probably say, well, I'd like a dog. Or I want some new video games. Or I want the iPhone. But what's truly best for children as you look into their future is for their parents to have a healthy, stable marriage. Because that gives, them, gives the children a healthy foundation in which to grow. It also provides a model of healthy relationships as lived out by their parents. Now, one other practical uh, benefit of, of a healthy marriage that I want to point out is how it contributes to the process of sanctification. The Bible says that just as iron sharpens iron, so one person sharpens another. This is true. It can be true in any relationship, but especially in marriage. I've heard it said that God did not design marriage to make us happy, but to make us holy. And that's a huge paradigm shift compared to how most people view marriage. Most people think, well, marriage will complete me. It'll fulfill me. It'll make me happy. But God didn't design marriage ultimately to make us happy, even though that, that is certainly a good byproduct to come from it. A major part of marriage is to make us holy, to refine us as we rub shoulders with one another. We, we rub off those, those sharp, jagged edges. Marriage is kind of like holding a mirror up in front of us, showing us our sin every single day. That's certainly not a comfortable process. I mean, even the best of marriages face significant challenges at times. But at the same time, when you think about that refining process, if we respond with humility and teachability in the process of sharing life together in a marriage, we become more like Jesus. So marriage has a lot of practical benefits. But at the same time, marriage is frequently not honored. And this is not a new phenomenon. It, it was even 2,000 years ago. You think this letter to these Hebrew Christians was written 2,000 years ago. And the author would not have needed to say, hey, you all need to hold marriage in honor if everyone there honored marriage all the time. But even 2,000 years ago, there was a lot that was happening that was dishonoring to marriage. The major threat to marriage back then was sexual sin. We'll come back to that in just a couple of minutes. But let me point out a couple other things that threatened the honor of marriage in that society. 
One was that you had teachings floating around that society that said that, that really, if you really want to follow God faithfully, then you shouldn't get married. For example, there was a group of Jews called the Essenes. Uh, you may be familiar with that term, perhaps, if you've heard of the Dead Sea Scrolls, because that was the group that preserved those scrolls that were found. Um, really cool story. But anyway, this group, the Essenes, they despised marriage. Because to them, marriage was accommodating sinful sexual desires. So therefore, they championed not only chastity, but celibacy. They said, you know what, it's better off to not get married. So that was one strand of teaching floating through society. Also, when you look at the upper classes in the Roman Empire, marriage was regularly treated as a hindrance to a free lifestyle. Again, especially in the upper classes of Roman society, a lot of people just wanted to sleep with whoever they wanted to without anyone looking over their shoulder. Now, they may get married sometimes, but divorce could happen quickly when they got bored or upset with their spouse or when someone who seemed better came along. So these were some of the challenges facing marriage back in that culture. Marriage still faces a lot of challenges in our culture today. I mean, I don't really need to even list the reasons, but I will list a few. I mean, you think about divorce. It's very common. You think about the attempts to redefine what marriage is. Let me show you some statistics that I find very eye-opening. These statistics are about the median age of, first, of, of a first marriage among people here in the United States. This comes from the U.S. Census Bureau. I check it every year or two just for classes or stuff because it's fascinating to me to see this trend I just put up there on, on this chart, just the last 60 years, every 20 years from 1960 to 2020, you can see a steady progression of people getting older before their first marriage. 1960, men were, the median age was 22.8, women 20.3 back in 1960. You zoom ahead to 2020, yeah, the, the median age of a male when they first get married is 30 and a half years old. And for women, 28.1. And you see that progression is not just taking place recently. It's been over years, a fairly consistent progression, although in the last 20 years has been when it's taken the biggest leap. And that continues. It's a continuing trend. There are many different reasons for this shift. For one, young, young adults generally ha have a lesser priority for marriage. They place a greater priority on other things in life before getting married. Also, you have cohabitation. It's become commonplace in our society for couples to live together before or even instead of getting married. They live together. They, 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 they have that without the commitment of marriage. And then you also have a broader skepticism about marriage in our society where people just wonder, you know, why get married at all? Why, why do I need that? Now, in bringing up these statistics, I'm not advocating for going back to 1960 way of doing things. I'm not advocating for that at all. What I am pointing out is shifts in society that have taken place, not only in, tr in trends, but in mindsets as it comes to people's perspective of marriage, and especially how recently, the last few decades, there's been a growth just about skepticism, of skepticism about marriage. Yeah, Hebrews 13.4 says, Let marriage be held in honor among all. 
Now, I think it's important to recognize that even though this verse is talking about marriage, it's talking about valuing and honoring marriage, that doesn't mean that people who are single are second-class citizens. I know that it, it frequently feels that way for people who are single, especially those who long to be married. It's easy in that case to feel lonely, to feel left out, to feel even like God has forgotten you. That can be a very, very challenging experience or challenging season in life. But this passage is not saying that singleness is bad. There is actually quite a bit of stuff that you can learn from Scripture about singleness, but this, this verse that we're looking at today doesn't actually say anything one way or the other about singleness. What it's saying is don't trample on marriage because to God, marriage is a good thing that should be honored. Now, one way that we can live this out practically is to honor marriage through sexual faithfulness. We see it in this verse. It says, Let marriage be held in honor among all, and let the marriage bed be undefiled, for God will judge the sexually immoral and adulterous. Now, in this context, this idea of the marriage bed refers to a sexual relationship between husband and wife. That is the most intimate, most personal, even most private thing that a husband and wife share together. It's something that others outside the marriage don't experience with them, don't even know about, but it's something special they share with one another. And there are a couple concepts here in this verse that show ways to mess up that intimate, personal, special marriage bed. One is adultery, which is having sex with someone you're not married to. Now, the other carries the term sexually immoral, and that covers a variety of other sexual perversions, things that are outside of what God's will is for the marital relationship or for sex. Now, the word for sexually immoral here, you may recognize it as the Greek word porneia. Does that sound kind of familiar? Porn. When I look at today, two of the huge issues that, that, that threaten marriage, especially from the sexual side, are sex outside of marriage, including affairs as well as pornography. Both damaged a lot of marriages. Now back then, premarital sex was not nearly as common 2,000 years ago in the Roman Empire, especially among Jewish people. Also pornography, as we know it today, was not common because they did not have the technology to produce it like we have today. Back then, though, affairs still happened and prostitution was everywhere. Prostitution was a big deal in that society that threatened a lot of marriages. About 15 years ago, my wife Shelley and I, we took a tour um, of various parts of, of Greece and other, other places following the footsteps of the Apostle Paul. One of the cities we had the opportunity to go to was the city of Ephesus. It's a city that you see occurring or, or, or appearing in Scripture. And in Ephesus, there is a famous library. Perhaps you've seen this in books or, or on uh, documentaries or something. A famous library there in Ephesus. Do you, want to know, do you want to know what's right across the street from the library? A brothel. Now, you may, I'm not going to define what a brothel is. Uh, many of you know what it is. You can guess if you don't know. Anyway, one of the interesting things that tour guides like to point out when, they, when we're in that part of the city is that archaeologists have discovered a tunnel under the street, between the library and the brothel. wonder, why would there need to be a tunnel between those two? Probably doesn't take a whole lot of imagination. I mean, you can imagine a husband saying to his wife, hey, honey, I'm just going down to the library for a couple hours. I'll see you later. 
He enters the library, looks respectable enough from the street, and makes use of the tunnel to go over to the brothel to cheat on his wife. Prostitution was all over the place in that society. It had a significant impact on marriage. The biblical ideal, though, for sexual activity is that it is reserved for your spouse. And that any sexual activity outside of the marriage is off limits. Now, I know that in our society, just like back then, there are sexual opportunities all over the place that are very tempting. It reminds me of what happened in the Garden of Eden to Adam and Eve. You can read about this in Genesis chapter 3. God gave them so much of the garden to enjoy. He said, hey, enjoy all this stuff. There's so much that's good here. But he pointed out one tree that was off limits. So yes, there were boundaries. There were limits. One tree that was off limits. They should not eat from that tree. They had a lot of other good stuff that they could enjoy. Well, Satan came along. And started pointing out that one forbidden tree, the fruit from that tree. And then Genesis chapter 3 shows that Adam and Eve noticed that the fruit from that tree was pleasing to the eye. It was attractive. It says that it was desirable. They wanted it. And then they ate of it. Ate of the forbidden fruit. That is when sin entered the world, things came crashing down. You even see right in that same passage that previously, remember, they had no shame together. Suddenly in their nakedness, they felt shame with one another. Now sexual temptation is like that forbidden fruit. It's pleasing to the eye. It feels desirable. You know, it gets the hormones pumping it. It gives you something that you want right now. Yet like that forbidden fruit in Eden, sexual sin leads to death. Now not to immediate physical death. It didn't for Adam and Eve. doesn't for us usually. But at the same time, it kills things. Kills our soul, kills relationships. I mean, sexual unfaithfulness is a sure way to damage or even to destroy a marriage. And imagine with me that you have a husband and a wife, and imagine that one of them brings a grenade into the living room and pulls the pin of that grenade and tosses it somewhere where no people are there, but it's going to blow up, it's going to cause damage. You can imagine. If a husband or wife does that, bringing a live grenade, pulling the pin, blowing up part of their house or apartment, you can imagine that trust between that husband and wife are not going to be quite the same anymore, is it? No, trust is going to be broken. Like, what in the world are you doing? Why would you do something like that? It's the same type of thing with sexual sin within a marriage. It brings damage. It breaks trust. I mean, trust can be rebuilt, but it takes a whole lot of effort, takes a lot of time, takes a lot of grace. And it's not guaranteed. Now, a person may think that they can keep their sexual sin secret. And maybe they can, for a while at least, but secrets frequently do come out. And even when it's a secret, it can tarnish and dishonor the marriage. And God takes this stuff very seriously. That's why it says in verse 4 of Hebrews 13 that God will judge the sexually immoral and adulterous. God takes this stuff seriously. But he also holds up the value of healthy, faithful marriage. I think of how in the book of Proverbs it has a lot to say about marriage and sex. Let me read for us Proverbs 5, verses 15 through 20. It's speaking metaphorically about marriage. 
It says, drink water from your own cistern, running water from your own well. Should your springs overflow in the streets, your streams of water in the public squares, let them be yours alone, never to be shared with strangers. May your fountain be blessed, and may you rejoice in the wife of your youth. A loving doe, a graceful deer, may her breasts satisfy you always. May you ever be intoxicated with her love. Why, my son, be intoxicated with another man's wife? Why embrace the bosom of a wayward woman? And it goes on from there, but you can see this picture of the value of faithfulness within marriage, of honoring the marriage bed, of honoring and prioritizing the marriage. There's such beauty and such joy that comes from a healthy marriage. And to be sure, a healthy marriage is a two-way street. It requires both sides committing to the other person's well-being and the well-being of the marriage itself. And unfortunately, many people have less than ideal experiences with that. But at the same time, it's valuable to recognize the ideal that God holds forth for us. So we come to a question of how do we honor marriage? And I imagine that you've thought of a few application points as we've gone through this passage today. But I just want to point out three for us. First of all, we honor marriage by recognizing its importance. Marriage as a God-given concept and gift should be valued. And valuing it is one way that we honor marriage. A second way, which applies to many people but not to everyone, is to honor marriage by pursuing and prioritizing the health of your marriage, whether your present or future marriage. Like I said, this applies not to everyone but to many people. If you're married, it's important to prioritize and pursue the health of your marriage. This includes how you invest your time. Do you invest all your time outside the marriage? Or do you invest time in in your spouse in your marriage it includes how you treat your spouse it includes your character and your faithfulness to your spouse and to your marriage it includes how you talk about your spouse to other people outside your marriage all this stuff makes a difference in in this passage the main application obviously is sexual faithfulness which is important in how we invest in our marriage and even if you aren't married but you might be married sometime in the future, you can prepare and invest in a healthy marriage in the future by honoring God now and recognizing the sexual decisions you make now or make before you're married impact you in the future and impact your marriage in the future as well. Stuff makes a difference. Well, a third application point is that we honor marriage by supporting the health of other people's marriages as well. For years, there was a public service announcement that proclaimed, friends don't let friends, you can probably fill in the blank, many of you adults, drive drunk. Friends don't let friends drive drunk. It's a a piece of great advice. And playing off that, friends also don't let friends throw away their marriage through selfish or dumb decisions. We should be intentional to support the marriages of friends, of family members, of people around us in every way that we can that's appropriate, especially with friends and those close to us. Encourage them to invest in their marriage in healthy ways, to not throw it away with dumb decisions, to not, 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 not tarnish it by allowing them to just get caught up in so many things besides their marriage and putting their marriage on the back burner. No, encourage them to prioritize their marriage and love their spouse well 
just as Jesus has loved the church. You know, one of the beautiful truths about human marriage is it is designed to be a snapshot of the relationship between Jesus and the church. A number of different times in the New Testament, we see terminology of how Jesus is like the groom and the church is like his bride. And that Jesus has sacrificed himself for us. He has poured out himself for our good, for the good of his church. And whatever marriage we are influencing, whether ours or someone else's, we should be working toward that same goal of the good of those within that marriage. Now, at the end of the day, as we look at these topics, there needs to be an awfully lot of grace, doesn't there? Because marriage, even the best of marriages, have challenges. There are certainly times where spouses let each other down or hurt each other, whether intentionally or unintentionally. There needs to be grace in those circumstances. And I'm sure that we all can think of circumstances as well, whether in our life or in someone else's life, where there is deep heartache and pain associated with marriage. Perhaps where there has been abuse or neglect, things that have happened that should never happen, but they have still happened. Again, deep pain and heartache. This is why it's so important for there to be grace. This is why it's important for us as a church family to be a place of grace, a place of support, a place also of truth, sharpening one another, encouraging one another to make wise decisions to honor God and honor others. It's also important that, that we're not merely pursuing healthy relationships with other people, but also with God, because God is the source of grace and forgiveness that then can flow through us as a conduit into the lives of those around us. We know that God loves healthy marriages. And so this can inspire us to be praying, whether it's for our marriage that we might be in, whether it's for other people's marriages. And we know that's a prayer that God wants to honor, that he wants to work through the Holy Spirit in these situations to help generate healthier and healthier marriages. So this is the ideal that God lays forth for us that we've been looking at today from Hebrews 13, verse 4. And it's something I want to go to God in prayer about right now. Because again, God cares about this stuff deeply. So let's go to God in prayer. Our Father, we thank you that you have laid out for us the ideal. Thank you that you've communicated to us through Scripture how you call us to live. Thank you also that you're God of grace and redemption because we know that in marriage, as in so many other parts of life, that they have been tainted by sin. This led to a lot of brokenness and a lot of pain. Lord, I pray for those in our midst, those around us who are struggling deeply with things that are hard in marriage, related to marriage, whether it's divorce, whether it's abuse, whether it's neglect and abandonment, other things even that I've not listed here this morning. Lord, we know that there's a lot of pain, a lot of hardship. I pray that your grace and your truth will be redemptively at work in these situations, bringing about good in the long term, even though there may be pain in the present. Lord, for all of us, I pray that we will honor you by supporting healthy marriages in our society, among those around us, and if we are married now or in the future, with ourselves, Lord. We need your grace. We need your guidance. We look to you, Lord. Help us to follow where you lead, to follow you faithfully. And we thank you again for your grace and your love and your guidance. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.